This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm joined by Mark Galley, our Editor-in-Chief. Good afternoon. Hey, Mark. Hey. Glad you're here. I'm glad to be back. We're not the only ones here in this No, we have a special guest in the studio today, which is always special for us. His name is Gideon Paramalam. He uh, was born in Nigeria. He studied uh, at Amadubello University in Zaria, Kaduna State, Nigeria. He is an advisory leader with Luzon and former regional secretary for the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, which is the international version of university, by the way, working with English and Portuguese-speaking Africans. He's most proud of the fact that he's married with five children and maybe some grandchildren on the way. We'll see. Welcome, anyway. Hi, thank you, Morgan. Uh, thank you, Mark. It's my joy to be here. It's awesome that you're here. Where did you come to us from? Where were you before this? I was in Spokane. Okay. Um, it's my first time in uh, what people call, is it the Northwest? or Pacific Northwest. Pacific Northwest, yes. And uh, frankly, each time I come to the States, it's mm-hmm. always uh, Chicago and Wheaton. <laughs> Chicago and Wheaton. Okay, I go to other parts. But I've never been to that part of the States. And then when I got there, I really fell in love, especially with the pine yes. trees. And it's mountains. It's hard not to fall and in love. And the mountains. <laughs> yeah. There's not really mountains over here. Let's be honest. Exactly. In, in Wheaton, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, in all of Illinois. The highest point in the state of Illinois is a building in downtown Chicago. So, And I was on that building now. I used to call it CS, but I was too, uh, told that the name has changed now. So I was on that building yeah. on Sunday. Can you believe that? There you We're go. Overseeing the city and praying over the city. Thank you for doing that. Chicago needs your prayers. Yeah, that's a cool that you did go to the building. I forgot. What is the Sears Tower called now? I don't know. Chase something or... Gali something I don't know. <laughs> Gary, I, I don't mm, know. Poor sponsor. No, <laughs> no one remembers. All right. Well, that is really cool. I'm glad you got to see a different part of the U.S. I agree. It's really Thank beautiful you. out there. All right. But today we are going to talk about. Nigeria, which is really exciting. So here we go. Nigerian Christians have had enough. Thousands took to the streets this week, weeks after an attack during a church service left 17 dead. Among the victims were two Catholic priests spurring the bishops to protest the government for failing to do enough to protect the Christian community. Nigeria is the most populous country in Africa. Divided between a predominantly Muslim North and predominantly Christian South, the country is home to some of the world's most vicious scenes of religious conflict. Boko Haram, an Islamist movement that seeks to impose Sharia law throughout Nigeria, has claimed responsibility for a spate of attacks on Christian churches in the last decade. But in recent years, the community faces another enemy known as the Fulani herdsmen. Nigeria ranks number 14 on Open Doors' World Watch list of countries where it's hardest to be a Christian. The country is also listed as a country of particular concern by the U.S. Commission for International Religious Freedom, a designation indicating, quote, systemic, ongoing, and egregious religious freedom violations. President Trump repeatedly spoke up for beleaguered Christians with the country's President Muhammadu Buhari during his recent visit to the White House. Today on Quick to Listen, we'd like to get a better sense of the threats Christians face in Nigeria and why it's so challenging for the government to get them under control. 
Before we get into our discussion today, just a reminder once again that everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine is helping make Quick to Listen possible. And I wanted to talk about an article in our May issue this month. It is called Reading Together Early Church Style. Mark, as you may have recalled when you were reading this story over, this is an interview that we did with a professor named Brian J. Wright. Yeah, and he reflects on something that's actually a wider movement. He had some, we had a guest come into our offices just a week and a half, two weeks ago, that is practicing reading the Bible together in uh, in downtown New York in a, in a very business-like setting. All they, they do is they gather together, they listen to a reading of Scripture at lunch, and then they go back to their offices. But there's something very powerful about just simply gathering together as listeners and sitting under the Word, so to speak, and just letting it roll over you that that people are finding uh, spiritually invigorating in lots of fresh ways. Yeah, my big takeaway from reading this article was that the early church did not know what a quiet time was. That is what I just thought. He, he says in this interview, he says, I think I could sum up everything I've learned in early Christian reading practices in four words. Quote, they did it communally. Yes, because part of the reason is because they didn't have a printed Bible. And so if you wanted to read the Bible, you had to go to a place where someone had a copy of it, and generally they didn't take turns passing it around for people. They just read it out loud. So one of the interesting things, if, you, if you've gone to a church service where someone has just memorized the Scripture passage and read it, you get a better sense of what it was like to listen to Scripture in the early church because it's just spoken to a whole congregation. Yeah. All right, so if this idea is interesting to you, clearly Mark and I think that we could record a mini-podcast on this topic. You can go read the article by becoming a subscriber, orderct.com slash quicktolisten, orderct.com slash quicktolisten. All right, Mark, time for a gut check. What is all this news coming out of Nigeria making you feel, or how's it? how are you reacting to it? Yeah, it, with, a, with a fair measure of sadness. I mean, uh, as a journalist, I've been following uh, Nigerian Christianity for... 15 or 20 years now since I've been at CT. It's just increasingly sad the amount of anger and hate and violence that is to be found there, and I don't even live there. So it must be much more difficult for the people who live there. And I don't know the way forward. I don't know that anyone does at this point, but um, it does require us to pray. And to pray intelligent mean, means we need to understand what, what's going on. That's why I'm really glad we have Gideon here with us today. That's going to help us a lot. So kind of the reason that we're talking about is there these protests that are going on. I know our listeners can't see this, but I do want the other people to just see pictures from the protests today. There that's, are a lot of people. That's today? Yeah. Oh, they're, so they're still going on. They were earlier today. Okay. In these pictures, you can see thousands of people, I would say, lining up to, to protest this violence. And similarly to Mark, this has been something that we have covered for, unfortunately, too long of a time. And at the same time, I really don't know much about what type of like pushback there's been, which is why this protest that's going on, I'm like really interested to just get some more context about if this is something that's new or if this has just been something that I just have not covered as much. But it's definitely tremendously sad. And I, I read tons of stuff that goes on in Nigeria, and it's really interesting. The country is so big and so diverse. There can obviously be lots of different storylines going on at the same time, but it's always really great to talk to someone who lives in the country themselves and can give us a broader perspective about all this. So Gideon, we are glad you're here. And just to kind of kick off this conversation, you know, we said earlier, this is Africa's most populous country. What do those of us who aren't really familiar with the country need to know about it? Just for starters. Again, thank you. It's my pleasure. 
Nigeria indeed is the most populous country in Africa. It's actually said that one in every four Africans is a Nigerian, so that tells you. But I think something also that people need to know is that Nigeria actually has the largest, is one single country that has the largest Muslim population in Africa. But Nigeria also has the largest single Christian population in Africa. And I think this gives you some kind of an idea of, of perhaps why some of this tension are present. Because you have a very vibrant Christian community who are very, very committed to sharing their faith in Jesus Christ. And you also have these vibrant Muslims who are ready to advance Islam. And then when you have that kind of context, then it's no wonder some of the things that we see coming out of Nigeria we're seeing today. So you mentioned, obviously, this religious diversity that exists here. Tell us a little bit, too, about the ethnic, cultural, and geographic diversity in the country. Yeah, you know, again, one thing about Nigeria is that there, the last time I checked, actually, there should be about 450 different dialects, languages in wow. Nigeria. Wow. It's a melting pot. And then you also come, there are, there, there's the big three the tribes, the big three, the, the House of Fulanis in the north. And again, not all of the north, the core north, but you have them also in other places. Then you have the Yorubars in the southwestern part of Nigeria. And then you have the Igbos in the southeastern part of Nigeria. But of course, there are other minority tribes. So when you come to the north, where the center of attacks taking place right now is the Middle Belt. And most of those in the Middle Belt were those who actually rejected Islam but embraced Christianity when the missionaries came. And also when you go back to the south, it's not all Igbos. There's the south-south. So people from the Niger Delta region. So you have all of these different ethnic nationalities because I think the tyranny of the majority has been to oppress the minorities. And these are ethnic nationalities. And so you have different uh, groups of people living within that geographical land space called Nigeria. You mentioned the big three. Where would the big three fall in terms of religious faith and identity? Now, you have the House of Fulanis. Majority of them are Muslim, but there are Christians who are House of Fulanis. The Yorubas are mostly Christians, but there are also Yorubas who are Christians, uh, Muslims. The Igbos are mostly, mostly, almost 99.99% Christian. But you still have a few Alhaji Chukuma, which is a bit abnormal. You won't understand that. But in Nigeria, when you talk about Alhaji Chukuma, everybody will look at you and start laughing. Chukuma, it's a popular Igbo name. But then you can't have an Alhaji there because everybody expects if you're from the eastern part of Nigeria, you are a Christian. But we do have few, very few. Alhaji Chukumas, okay? So majority, you can see from what I've given you now that we have a soft... And then when you come to the Middle Belt, it's not part of the Big Three and the South-South, but when you take the Middle Belt and the South-South, very significant population, they are mostly Christians. Few Muslims in the Middle Belt, but majority of the Middle Belt are Christians. And then all of the South-South, majority of them, again, are Christians, but there are again pockets of Muslims. 
So does that help explain some of the violence against Christians by Muslims? They're feeling threatened by this, the popularity of Christianity? I can just go straight and say, yes, the popularity of Christianity. You see, the Christians you have in Nigeria are not those armchair Christians who just sit back and relax and recline into nominalism or just, just, just feel at ease with nominalism. You have the church in Nigeria, in spite of her imperfection, is very missions-minded. I mean, if you look at some of the largest in, in the global south, and Africa in particular, one of the largest sending missionary church from Africa today is the church in Nigeria. Yeah, we have some congregations in the Chicago area that are from Nigeria, planted yes. by Nigerian missionaries. Yes. And, and that's just, just one sample. It's all over. And you in go Los to the Angeles, Middle East. I know there's some in Los Angeles as well. Yes, yeah. you, you find some also in Texas. Actually, I've preached in a couple of them. There are places that you least expect. There are churches there pastored by Nigerians. And I'm not also just talking about the traditional missionaries. No, these are engineers, very well educated, but who see combining their faith and their Christianity as not in contradiction. And they're able to live out their Christian witness in workplaces, but they also are not ashamed to hold a Bible, even in places where you have underground churches, to declare their faith in Christ. I want to talk a little bit about Christian diversity, too. So this story that we started with is one that was uh, after a attack on a Catholic church. What's bigger, the Protestant church, the Catholic church? How do they kind of get along or relate to each other? The Catholics, you have a significant number of Catholics in Nigeria, very significant. You also have a significant number of Protestants also in Nigeria. I think Nigeria, you know, it's, it's a melting pot of sorts, okay? But, you know, also within the Catholic church, you also have what you call the Catholic charismatics who are closer to the evangelical Christians. Of course, you know, the word evangelical has all sorts of meanings and sheets, you know. Uh, you need to define that. But to put it simple for me, but once I use the word evangelical, people who really, really believe in the inspiration of the Bible by the Holy Spirit. So there are Catholics that embrace that. So when you, when you see them connecting with evangelical Christians, they actually connect more with evangelical Christians, connect more with some of the Pentecostal Christians. So you have that also. All right. So thank you for giving us that big outline. That's incredibly helpful as we move forward in this conversation. Going back a little bit further steps, so just to give a little bit more context, historically, do Muslims and Christians get along with each other? Historically, honestly, I would say, because, you see, I'm privileged also to come from the North or come from the Middle Belt specifically. And so most of my schooling, Zaria, for instance, it's okay to say it's a Muslim city historically. And so most of my interactions has been with Muslims. In Kaduna, where I did my secondary school in government college, which is a, a unity school, I school with Muslims. So I can say here, based on experience, that we used to get along before without issues. Okay, there, there was systemic persecution because I can graduate from the university with a Muslim. That Muslim is more guaranteed of getting a better job of getting quick promotion, of being recognized, than I would because of my Christianity. So systemic persecution has always been there. Now, let me backtrack. You see, in 1804, 
there was a jihad, the Uthman Damfodio jihad. That's what gave birth to the Sokoto Caliphate. And so when you hear about the powerful Islamic leader in Nigeria, the Sultan of Sokoto, he's a descendant of Uthman Damfodio. Now, the, 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 the Muslim jihad meant that they actually wanted to conquer all of Nigeria, but they got stopped because they couldn't conquer the Middle Belt. That's why the Middle Belt resisted Islam and embraced Christianity. So the, the jihad never had control over the Middle Belt people until the colonialists came. So the colonialists came and actually because the, the British used the indirect rule system, that gave a good head start for the House of Fulani political uh, leaders. So they ended up, because the British were walking through them, that's actually how they got access to the Middle Belt and started controlling the Middle Belt politically. So basically, I think that they were helped by the colonialists very sad. Huh. Very yes. ironic, right? Ironic, rather. By the... Ironic, yes. In fact, the, the colonialists, the British, would not even allow some missionaries to go to Muslim-dominated areas because the Muslim-dominated areas would say, don't come here to do evangelism. Something like that, okay? We still have pockets in some of these places, but it was restricted, controlled. But then you have some of these uh, Muslim leaders in government in league with the British administ uh, uh, colonial administrator, the district leaders and what have you. What do you do? Begun to use political carrots to lure Christians to become Muslims. So when you become a Muslim, you get more. Now, this is where I'm headed to. So you look at that colonial angle, and then you look at the systemic persecution, even after the British left, that systemic persecution basically continued, mostly in the northern part of Nigeria. And then by 1987, for the first time, the church came under, and when I mean first time, mass, mass, frontal attacks where Christians were attacked, killed, churches burned down, 1987. And ever since, it's been these frontal attacks. So the church Christians have always come under attacks. 1987, 1990, 1992, I can just go on and on and on. The Sharia in 2000, you know, basically the imposition of Sharia all over the north, which Christians said, no, we won't come under Sharia. That was on. And then as this continued, by 2009, the emergence of Boko Haram. Now, physical elimination of Christians. But going beyond that, and I always like to be fair, always, anytime I speak on these issues, whether in Nigeria or outside, or even in some of my articles, when I'm interviewed by newspapers, okay? Boko Haram killed both Christians and Muslims. But make no mistake about it. Their goal is to exterminate, to eliminate Christians. Because then Boko Haram moved from all these attacks to Christians, churches killing Christians even though they kill Muslims. By 2011 December, they issued a decree asking all Christians in the northeastern part of Nigeria and in the middle, uh, northern part of Nigeria to relocate to the south. So when you begin to uproot Christians from their ancestral homes, on account of their faith, it's a different signal. So I'm sitting down and thinking, okay, look at the history from the jihad period till now. I think it's pointing to something. And it's important that believers all around the world know this, pray for us. It's also important that the governments of the world really, really look closely and critically at what is happening in Nigeria. Uh, just look at the sequence, okay? As I said, 
from the systemic to the frontal attacks and then to killing of Christians. And now you're beginning to ask Christians to move away from their ancestral homes. It's pointing somewhere. And I think we need to discover that. Now, to be completely fair, Christians have not, they have responded in how different ways, I understand. So they're doing protests now, but I understand sometimes they, they strike back violently themselves. Or Yes. Very good question, Mark. I must commend you for that. That has been at the heart of why some of us are actively involved in this struggle, if you like. Okay? Christians were attacked, and many of us have always appealed to Christians to obey the teachings of Christ. And I must say, difficult. Each time there is an attack, there are some key Christian leaders that will rally around and try and encourage the, the, the believers, encourage them not to react. But then each time you keep attacking Christians, the military government at the time when it started, at the time of General Ibrahim Badamasi Babangida, unfortunately, couldn't really do anything to stop those attacks. And people were disturbed. 87, 92, the Zangon Cut-Off Crisis. Then, actually 90, during one of these German Reinhard Bonke's crusade in Kanu, because it's considered... Muslim, they wouldn't want him to come there to do a crusade. And yet we had Christians. So Christians would always submit. But 2000, when Sharia came and Christians saw that now we're really going to be under Sharia. And, and that, that means basically that Boko Haram had controlled these territories and had introduced Sharia law there? No, no, not at all. We'll come to that. Boko Haram had not yet come. Okay. As at 19, 2000, when Sharia was declared, mostly by governors, who became, now Nigeria now moved from the military to a civilian regime, and you had politicians who were elected governors by the votes of the people, voted both by Christians, voted also by Muslims, and then you come in there and you declare Sharia. I think it's... Okay, so they were democratically elected. Democratically elected, and they declared Sharia. Okay. In most of the North, where you had Christians, and the Christians said no. Now, this when Christians said, no, if we keep on like this, we will be eliminated. So some Christians actually began to fight back in resisting. And their argument was simple. When we talked to them, they said, look, Jesus said we should turn our right cheek. In 1987, we turned our right cheek. In 1992, we also turned our left cheek. In 2000, we don't have a third cheek because Jesus only talked of your cheeks left, right. No cheek. 2000, and Christians actually in Kaduna, let me be precise in Kaduna, Kaduna State, that's my home state, led a peaceful protest by writing a memo and taking to the House of Assembly at Lugard Hall, uh, yeah, the Lugard Hall, and handed it over to the speaker who was a Muslim and said, this is it, Christians do not want to live under Sharia law. And when these Christians, children, men and women that marched out in protest to deliver this letter, peaceful, were returning back, they were attacked by Muslims. That is when some of the heftier men, some of the more taller men, put the women and the children who were part of that protest in the middle and took all the stones, took all the attacks, marched them home, to their, marched them to where they felt they were safe, and then they started to fight back. That's the context under which yeah, that no, came about. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Especially if the government's not there to help you. Not yes. to help to protect, especially the, vul- the most vulnerable in your society, women yes. and children in that society. Yes. Yeah. I didn't ask that question by way of trying to condemn 
the reaction just to try to understand it. Yes, no, I, that, that's actually, I understood it like that. Okay. That's why I took time. And I need to also add. And so now you begin to, in Jock's Plateau State, that's the city where I live. When again, on a Sunday, 8, January 17th, 2010, I can never forget, Christians were actually worshiping in an Equa church, evangelical church winning all in a section of Jos Nasarawa, Guam. They were actually in church. And before you realized it, Muslims were working on a construction building, a story building. For whatever reason, nobody knows what happened. The preacher was preaching. And before you realized it, the Muslim burst into the church and they attacked the Christians, brought a motorbike. I went there physically to inspect things. So I'm talking about what my eyes have seen and witnessed. They brought a motorbike with gas, petrol. It's what we call in Nigeria, but gas, you call it in America. And they lit it and it exploded and destroyed that church. The roof, everything gone. Pulled down the building. A little section of the building left. I, can, I have a picture. I snapped it with my camera. You know what they wrote on that, on, on that little part of the building left standing? Islam is for peace. Huh. What a contradiction. And so at that time, Christians in just got a bit really, really upset. They wanted to fight back. And we, the church leaders, gathered. And with due humility, also I say this, even though I don't pass to a church, but I'd become a missional leader in Africa and a, 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 a major leader within the country and within the community. We began to talk to the youths to stop them from fighting back. And then in 2012, when Boko Haram bombed the first church in Jos, Kokin Church of Christ in Nations, Kokin Church in Jos, a church that had worshippers actually going close to about, I, 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 I can't put it, but close to about 10,000, three services, the first service, bombed. It was only the miracle of God that only two people died. Okay, Boko Haram came there. At that time, the youth got angry and they were out they wanted to kill any Muslims they saw because they equated Boko Haram with other Muslims. Again, we came out and said, no, you can't do that. And we've managed to get our youths to stop going out to fight, pointing them to Christ. They're agitated, but will continue to stand by the Bible. Now, that's something that many church leaders are doing quietly that doesn't get spoken of. But please, I'm thank, thanking you for this opportunity. Please share it because I also participate in talking to the youths to make sure that please don't fight back. Don't fight back. And we're hopeful, we're hopeful that one day the government will see sense and maintain law and order. Because when you have the government and killings are taking place, it's very disturbing. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is both faithful to the original languages and really easy to read. I'm here with Thomas Schreiner, one of the translators of the Christian Standard Bible, and he says that after working on this translation, he had an epiphany that Bible translation is hard work. They're just tough decisions to make. It might sound like, well, you should always render the, the same word with the same translation, but that doesn't always work because the contexts are different. So there's just thousands of decisions to make. W one thing working on this translation convinced me of, and it's this. It's, it's hard. I became much more charitable to all translations working on this one. The ESV is a good translation. The NIV is a good translation. 
We think our translation is a good translation. We, we actually have an embarrassment of riches. There are good reasons to choose various translations. I mean, we're proud of the CSB and we think it's a great translation, but we, we think there's a place for lots of different kinds of translations. You can learn more about the Christian Standard Bible at csbible.com slash ct. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join ChurchLawAndTax.com today. All right, so last month we have this attack that leaves... 17 people dead during a weekday mass. And as we mentioned this week, there's all these protests going on. Are those normal? Do those happen all the time? Or is this a, is this a pretty big deal? What's going on here? It's very difficult for me. Today, on one hand, is a very sad day for me. And Mark said it also about the sad events in Nigeria. But today is also a very happy day for me. The protests have been monitoring the protests from here. It's not the first time. The church had always wanted a way to express their anger, to make a statement to the government. But they've never really succeeded in pulling together because there are those who said, well, let's keep dialoguing and see if we can find peace. But the killings basically just continued. The build-up to the protest actually began when Leah Sharibu, the 15-year-old Christian girl, one of the Dapchi girls adopted by Boko Haram on February 19th, and after negotiations, the federal government, walking through the UN, all of the girls were released, 110 of them, because they decided to embrace Islam. Except for her. But Leah decided not to. That's when some of us said, oh no, we just can't just be talking and crying. Something needs to be done. And while we're trying to work out Leah's issues, working on that, then in late April, the Fulani Hartsmen invaded a church a Catholic church. They killed a priest. They killed his visiting friend priest who joined him in the mass. And that's how they actually killed about 20 people or 19. They killed these people in the church. Now, the argument has always been that these are Fulani Hartsmen. They're killing because of their cows. Please, I ask one simple question. Do cows also go into churches? If you say that you're killing farmers because cows would go in to eat their farms and the farmers would react and you go back and kill the farmers. Now, when you start going into churches to kill priests and worshippers, do cows go into churches? I think this is what the global community needs to put on their thinking caps on this issue. And when those people were killed, I was in Spokane, in the States. I was alerted. I became very disturbed. 
and I constructed a WhatsApp text. I can make that available to you. And in that, I send it to all the key church leaders, including the Catholic priest. And I said, we have cried enough. We have talked enough. We have prayed. We will continue to pray, but we've got to act. And other voices arose. And then the Christian Association of Nigeria got together and decided that April 29th, Christians all over Nigeria should meet in their churches and pray. And after that, they should stage peaceful protest within the vicinity of their churches. Now, the time was short when that was issued. So not too many of the churches had the chance to participate. But I monitored that. I went into argument. I can say this here. When I was contributing in some WhatsApp and said, look, we really need to go out, pray, but also demonstrate peacefully and show that we're followers of Jesus. I can never forget in one WhatsApp group, somebody said to me, hey, Gideon, you want us to just go out and, and pray? We're, we're tired of praying. You want us to go and protest peacefully? What do you mean? How do we protest peacefully? We want to protest with guns. He said, they went into the church and killed Christians with guns. We cannot go and be protesting peacefully. But I stood my grounds and said, if we want to protest, we've got to be like Jesus. And so I had to monitor it from the USA and discover that several churches participated. Several bishops participated. The Methodists actually participated. I've got photos. And then the Catholics didn't, but we kept on. But the Catholics decided, okay, they're going to have one day in which they will mobilize the Catholics to also join in the protest. But now the killing of those priests actually drew the Catholics into the struggle full time. Okay. And then now they, is, they, they, they spoke within the Catholics that this burial, they would use the day of the burial today, May 22nd, to protest the killings, not just of the Catholics, but the killings all over Nigeria. That's why I say it is a very sad day, because I've got 20 photos I can make available to you here. And, 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 and yesterday night, I spoke to one of the, the, the Catholic priests, a father, reverend father, who is also a professor. And I said, OK, you're going to do this. It shouldn't just be the Catholics. Other believers would need to join in. And he said, yes, they've made it so. And then he said he's spoken to the, the president of the Christian Association of Nigeria, who happens to be in the USC as well. I mean, I spoke to him as well. And he said they are giving their full support. And so all Christians were encouraged to join the Catholics. So today, that's where I'm sad. When I saw those coffins and the dead bodies, you know, they buried 16 actually today. The other three, their bodies were mutilated beyond recognition. So they had to bury them early. And so... Christians got involved. And now I discovered that in Makodi itself, burial, peaceful protest. In Abuja, in Lagos, in Ibadan, in Yola, in Kafanchan, all over Nigeria. So this to me would be its a turning point because Christians are now saying we can no longer just fold our arms and allow ourselves to be killed like chickens, like animals, like cows. So they're coming out in protest. This protest is a, def it's a turning point. And I think the rest of the world, please understand what's happening in Nigeria. Christians are protesting, not just because they want to resist persecution, but you can't continue to kill Christians and nobody's doing anything about it. And I know our government will say they're doing a lot. Well, they need to do more. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they need to do more. 
So that is the background of this crisis. It's not the first. I can only say that this is the beginning of many more things that will happen by way of protest. And the picture I saw, I, there were thousands in that picture. So there are thousands, tens of thousands. How many do you think are protesting? Well, I haven't been able to collate the numbers, but because they're protesting in multiple cities, okay. it will be significant. And I, I would probably think, I, I don't want to exaggerate, but I would not be surprised if we have between 500 to 1 million people coming out oh, in protest. Wow. Okay. Yes. But but I can confirm the numbers once I check. We can confirm too yeah. and put in our write-up for the podcast. Yeah. All right. So that was an amazing overview and I appreciate you kind of giving us how, you know, how these protests started and how you ended up organizing them. You mentioned the Fulani herdsmen who some people may be familiar with, but probably not as familiar with them as they are with Boko Haram. That, that is also the puzzle that we have in Nigeria. I granted an interview in a, to a newspaper in Nigeria, one of the national dailies, and I quoted a sitting governor, actually. He asked a simple question. If the Fulanese, who are herders... So they, they don't... They're nomads? They're nomads. Okay. And they look after cows, and they watch their cows very well. But there are also Fulanese in two categories. They're nomads and also the educated city Fulanese. Okay. He said, if it is grass they're looking for, why are they killing human beings? So back to what your question. The Fulanese are herders. They always look after cows. And I know that. I've grown up as a child connecting with Fulani people who looked after their cows. Many of them live in my own village. The current Fulani chief, the Ardo in my village, is my age mate. I go home and I see him. He was looking after his cows. I will go to the farm to farm. I went to primary school. He continued looking after his cows. I went to high school, went to the university. I visit home as a graduate. He's still looking after his cows. We are still living together. The last time I was at home in December 2017 into January 1st, 2018, I also saw him. We greeted peacefully. So we have always lived in peace, let me say that, because they're looking after their cows. But all of a sudden, there have always been conflicts, but we found ways to resolve those conflicts peacefully, amicably, in the various communities. But now we had Fulanese with sophisticated A4, AK-47, killing people mercilessly. And the argument we will hear from our leaders, even from the president of Nigeria, Muhammadu Buhari, when he was both in Britain and also here in the UK, US, because I heard him say it. Uh, basically, these people, uh, the Fulanese he knew, carried stick. He himself is Fulani. But that they, the, the ones now killing people, they carry AK-47. And that they come all the way from Libya. And I said, wait a minute. My president saying this? Listen, listen, look at the map of Africa. North Africa, look at Libya. Okay, so these Fulani herdsmen trained in Libya. They pass Algeria, pass Mali, pass Niger, come into Nigeria. Now, when they come into Nigeria, mark you, most of the cities that bother Chad, Niger, and other uh, countries uh, closer to, to North Africa, they're Muslim cities. They pass Kanu. They pass Maiduguri. They pass Katsina. They pass Sokoto, the north, the core north of Nigeria. And the place they go to kill people is the Christian dominated area in the middle belt. Please give me a break. I think something fun is happening here. Mm. And yet, in spite of that, they pass all of these cities 
and you have the Nigerian military, and they just walk free, come and attack and disappear, I think the political spin is faulty. I don't take it serious. So you're, you're under the belief that they've been radicalized in the same way that we've seen other different groups radicalized. I believe so. And that the government, the government's supportive of that, or at least is indifferent to it. I, I would say, honestly, more of indifference or lip service. The government comes out to condemn it. But again, in the funeral today at Makodi, I'm very happy to say this. I was very happy because that's my own theological position. The governor of the state says, we will not fight back. We will not retaliate. That's victory for the faith, for Christianity in Nigeria, in Africa, and around the world. That those who are, have been killed, they're burying bodies, and the governor says, no, we're not going to fight back. It's powerful. But also added to that today, the vice president of Nigeria was also present. Yeah. Did that, did that surprise you? I'm, I'm quite happy that he's, he's a Christian. He's a pastor. I, I think if I go by the Bible, he has only done what is expected of him. And so no extra credit. But I'm happy that he's there, honestly, because he's a Christian. You know, if he's going to leave as a Christian in that position as the number two man in Nigeria, the Bible says, mourn with those who mourn. He has just done what Jesus asked him to do. Now that he has done what Jesus asked him to do, I hope that our vice president, Professor Yemi Osipanjo, with due respect, will now go back and tell the president of Nigeria, his, his, his principle, that what I saw in Makadi is enough for the government to rise up and go beyond lip service to do something to stop these killings. They've always been saying they don't like the killings, but you've been saying that how many years now? And that's happened under Christian and Muslim presidents, too. Yes. Right? You guys had a Christian president before this. Yes. Now you have a Muslim president. Yes. Well, okay, we had a Christian president. It had happened under him. And one of the reasons why the Muslim guy got elected, Buhari, is because he promised I'm going to deal with Boko Haram. I'm the law and order guy. I'm tough on security. Being a retired general, we believed him. I'm one of those that believed him. Now I feel like a fool. And we supported him. He comes in now. Now we're not just dealing with Boko Haram. Of course, he did. He's done well in containing them. But Boko Haram is rising again. But this is what has happened. Now we have another hydra-headed demon in the Fulani hearts men. So now we used to contend with one problem, Boko Haram. Now with Buhari in power, we're contending with two sets of attackers and killers, the Boko Haram and the Fulani Hatsman. Double problem. And we thought we were solving one, bringing him to eliminate Boko Haram, but now we have Boko Haram and Fulani Hatsman. Not to get into all of this, but I also know that Buhari has also spent significant amount of time outside of the country as well. True. Again, I always like to be fair, to be honest, he's been very unwell. But he's stronger now. So why he took lots of times to be out of Nigeria, I think last year was completely connected to his health. Okay. Okay. But now he travels, but he goes back home. I mean, he came to the U.S. He didn't stay long. He was in Britain. He didn't stay too long. He went back home. So let's just give it to him. At least he's more at home now than he was before. I'm glad he's doing better. I think the Bible teaches us to be gracious, you know, even when you are not happy. So... We've spent most of this conversation talking about the threats posed to the church because of terrorism. We've also, Christianity Today, I mean here, we've, we've published a piece recently that argued that the biggest threat to the Nigerian church wasn't Muslim persecution, though, but was corrupt pastor behavior. What do you make of that argument? Especially uh, attraction to, to wealth, prosperity gospel. 
honestly, okay, again, I sometimes I'm noted for being blunt and frank if I need to. I wonder why. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, and I'm going to comment on it, okay? I, I won't say it when Boko Haram was rearing its head and all these complaints about Muslims' agenda and what have you and what have you. Uh, by the way, I do. A, I have a peace meeting with Muslims, so I really believe that we can find ways to work together with Muslims. I need to put that on record, so I commit to that. I used to say that Muslims, they are not a threat to Christians in Nigeria. If anything, the threat is nominalism, Pentecostal nominalism, evangelical nominalism as well, when people just slide into business as usual. And so, in a sense, positive things coming out of this persecution is the fact that Christians are beginning to take their faith serious. So that's positive. Leah Sharibu's singular decision that I would rather remain a Christian and die, remain in captivity, than to deny Christ. That was a wake-up call. Parents now are saying, we need to take Sunday school, teaching our children how to understand the Bible from cradle. Take it serious. So there are positive things coming out of it. Now, the prosperity gospel, it's very popular in Nigeria, in Africa. Sadly, it's being exported from Nigeria to other parts of Africa. And when you export those kind of teachings, I call it a theological virus that is cancerous in nature. There's a way it does. It actually, it, it, it's mutate in a very, in fact, worse than when you got it. So where Nigeria has exported it in Africa, they've adopted it. Believe me, it's worse than what you see in Nigeria. Now, I need to put this on record. I went to Wheaton College as a student. I say that with humility. When I came into Wheaton in 97, and the idea of doing a, a, a project, a research project came up, I told my professor, I want to do my research thesis on the attraction of the health and wealth gospel to young Christians in Nigeria. And my professor said, we haven't done any study like that before in Wheaton. It's a new field. We don't have so many books. And I said, no, I'm going to try it. And so I got a chance to study my thesis is there. And, and, I, and I completed it in 1999 and submitted it. And I've gotten my grades. So I, I got my grades there. So that means I passed. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I discovered that actually the prosperity gospel got to Nigeria, exported from the U.S. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I wouldn't, that doesn't okay. surprise me. Yeah. Good. Now, when those in Nigeria got it, believe you me, they've done it in the context of Nigeria, I'll say overdue. They've overdone it. And suddenly now the attraction to glamour, a lifestyle that is not consistent with Christ-likeness has become the order of the day. It's only a matter of time. The prosperity gospel teaching, if something is not done seriously, it has the potential of killing Christianity. I know some of my friends who are propagating the prosperity gospel would not like it, but that's just the simple truth. It's weakening Christianity. It's compromising Christianity. It's turning Christianity into a, a, a vehicle in which people become rich. So if you want to become rich, the quickest thing is to start a church and begin to preach prosperity. And yes, when you have a pastor boasting of having three private jets, changing jets, no, I don't think it's proper. You didn't come to America on your private jet? <laughs> you, see, you see, this is, uh, Megan, this is why they said Gideon is talking like this because he's jealous, you know. <laughs> I flew economy. Just... Even the economy, I got the, the lowest of the lowest of economy. So there are certain seats I cannot sit on. So I'm restricted to other seats, you know. Uh, I, I, I've, I, I love the Lord Jesus Christ because he modeled simplicity. And one of the ministers also that has modeled simplicity 
and I say it with joy, is the late Reverend Billy Graham. Those are the models some of us believe in, we see, we like. Personally, I, I have a distaste for the display of wealth because that is the display of wealth is what has made corruption to survive. It's been nurtured in Africa. And so the church is supposed to be prophetic in fighting corruption. But very sad, the church now is embracing some of the corrupt practices we see in politicians. I can never support it. And I think it's dangerous. Unfortunately, if this prosecution persists, I don't see how the prosperity gospel will survive. Exactly. I don't see how it will survive. No, I'm not saying bring on the prosecution, but I just, maybe I use this also to make an appeal to those who listen to this, who may, if you get to listen to it from Nigeria, or if you are a Nigerian or an African in the U.S. and you're listening to this program, please, I think we need to rethink the whole theology of the prosperity gospel. Church leaders need to rise so that we can address it. Christ is, you see, some people argue, okay, if you say no prosperity, do you want us to be poor? Christ did not call us into poverty. Neither did Christ call us into, into excessive riches. I think godliness with contentment, the apostle Paul says, is great gain. It's a way you can live as a Christian that will model simplicity that brings glory to God. And I think that's what I stand for. That's what I want to promote. Nothing wrong if you become, if you're a good businessman and you make money, you have a factory, you, we need businessmen with money because they need to support the gospel. But I do not understand pastors who are businessmen. I don't understand that. We've talked a lot about some like really intense subjects on this podcast today. I'm wondering if we can conclude this show by just hearing from you where you see God working right now in Nigeria. I've highlighted them, I can just be very specific one. I think many Christians now are re-examining their lives in the light of the teachings of Christ with all that's happening. More people are drawn to God. Uh, instead of these persecutions and the killings of Christians, it's actually having the direct opposite effect. Instead of making Christians to disown their faith, actually, Christians are now ready to stand up for their faith, including laying down their lives if it came to that. I also think that this persecution and the killing of Christians is actually helping even nominal Christians, non-believers, to actually now say, look, something is terribly wrong with the leadership in Nigeria. And they're asking hard, soul-searching questions. And I would also say that even though it's quiet, there are Muslims also who don't feel happy with these killings. And they feel that a lot of injustice is being meted out to Christians in the way they're treated. Those ones are still silent. Not many of them talk, but some of them, few are speaking. So there are positive things coming out of this. But let me also add by saying that I think that there are, I've interacted with other Christians in Africa, around the world, who say they look on what's happening in the church and how Christians have conducted themselves in Nigeria, and they're inspired to continue to be serious in their walk with God, in their Christianity. So, God will bring good out of this. It's difficult, it's painful at this moment, but something good will come out of it, I believe. Thank you so much, Gideon. What an amazing overview and stories that you had to share with us. I really appreciate you just explaining all of that to us. And it was awesome to hear from someone who's on the ground having all these relationships and conversations with people. 
If you have feedback for the podcast, you can leave it on Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts, or you can send us an email at ctpodcasts at christianitytoday.com. All right, now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when we ask people to share something that is bringing them joy this week. Mark, throwing it to you. Well, I'm going to cheat and say this podcast has been a precious moment. I've just really enjoyed listening to Gideon and your passion and your insight into what's going on there. But I don't think that's the purpose of the precious moment. So I will add that last week I had a week off to do some writing and some fishing in northern Michigan in a very peaceful setting. A beautiful river there called the Osable. And in the morning, I'd get up and write by the campfire, working on a book for Christianity Today. And then about middle of the afternoon, I'd take off for the river and do some fly fishing. And that was just a great, great chance to re get rejuvenated. I like eating fish, Mark. Is there a chance I'll get some of it? Some oh, of no, I don't, I, don't ke- I don't keep them. Okay. okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do catch and release. I just make them suffer for a while and trust in the Lord. And there's not good fish in Chicago. Sorry, you have to go back to the Pacific Northwest yeah, yeah, where you yeah. were. Yeah, yeah you're, there you'll get great fish. Yeah. I enjoyed some salmon there. Yeah. Best place for salmon. Okay, Mark, where can people find you outside uh, of this? I publish a weekly newsletter called The Galley Report in which I make links to stories and make comments on them. And you can find that by going to christianitytoday.com slash Report, which is G-A-L-L-I report. You ready, Gideon? Yes, precious moments. To be honest, again, like uh, Mark, uh, let me be honest. Uh, this podcast interview, for me, it's a precious moment. Let me be honest. You can be honest. The reason is because, you know, when I left Nigeria, there were those Christians that said, would you be a voice for the suffering church? I had no idea how I was going to do that. I didn't plan it. I shared what happened when BBC called me up. I didn't plan it. When that church pastor asked me to come and share about Leah, I did not. Imagine I will be sitting here this afternoon doing a podcast. It's a precious moment. And I think believers in Nigeria would be very happy when they get to know that something like this took place and that I was able to speak on behalf of the voiceless. So thank you, Christianity Today. But let me just add, last year, two of my children got wedded. My son, Nomse Paramalam, and my daughter, I.B. Stephanie Paramalam, they got married. And I didn't get a chance to see them. They both live in England. And on my way to the U.S., I stopped over in England for a month. And I got to visit them a few days before leaving for the States. So it's wonderful. You know, I can't believe how old I'm becoming now to see my son and his wife, to see my daughter and her husband, you know. And, you know, my son likes to call me Pops. That's the name he calls me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so it was a joy. Where did they meet their spouses? In, in, in England also, because uh, they, at some point, uh, my wife, uh, a very nice woman who supports me in what I do, Professor Fumi Paramalam, uh, she's into academics, a researcher. Uh, she, she was born and raised in Britain, so, uh, but back in Nigeria for a long time. So when she was doing a PhD, she went to England. So then because of the itinerant nature of my work, I took the children to stay with her. So then they had to complete their education. We waited for them to complete their education. And, you know, children, completing education, they ended up finding wife, finding husband. And so we had to allow them to get married. But hopefully one day they plan to come back to Nigeria. With grandchildren in hand. In uh, uh, waiting, you know. My, my son and my, his wife, when I, I asked my daughter first, because I stayed with my daughter and her husband, uh, uh, a medical doctor, and I said to him, guys, I don't want to put you guys under pressure, but 
One of your aunties say I should ask, when are the grandchildren coming? And then my daughter and the husband looked at me and they laughed. And they said, Daddy, <laughs> they gave me no answer and they left. <laughs> and then, of course, my son. Now, there's a story on that. I don't want to come into that. But he just said, hi, pops. Not yet. We told ourselves two years. And the children of nowadays, you can't dictate to them. You negotiate. So I'm still negotiating. <laughs> okay. But it is your job to put pressure on them. Let it's me just not, tell you as a grandparent. Not, no, it is your job. That is not. No, Mark. <laughs> out of bounds. Gideon, do you have a website or are you on social media at all? Yes. Some things that I've written and spoken there on the IFS website, uh, uh, www.ifsworld.org. I think they may find some things there. But uh, I've done, as I said, I've done a lot of peace meetings, peace videos that have been uploaded into YouTubes. So if somebody just goggles Gideon Paramalam, I think you're going to find a lot of stuff. I've done a lot of newspaper interviews recently also on the situation in Nigeria. They're also out there on the internet. And then last week, Leah Sharibu turned 14 and a friend was recording me for something else. And then he got two minutes of Leah Sharibu. So he put up a small YouTube video. And uh, with an appeal from me to pray for Leah and to ask for work for her release. And so it's on YouTube. It's also on Facebook. Pray for Leah Sharibu, Gideon Paramalam. You would see that. So my precious moment is last night we had a birthday party for this woman named Desiree who is turning 60. She goes to my church and I attend a house church. Most of the families that are part of this house church have been friends for 10 to 15 years and have really kind of met when they were, some of them met when they were in high school, but a lot of them met when they were early 20-somethings and started a house church together and raised their families together. So not everyone is at the church anymore, but Desiree, who we had this party for, wanted to kind of hang out with the original crew. And so I got to make her a cake and we had about 15 to 20 people in the backyard. We told stories of stuff that we remembered about her and just enjoyed being with each other. It was really great to just see everybody, especially since I've said some people have moved on from the church since then. So it's nice to have parties that bring everyone back together with each other. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, that is it for us this week. Thank you to everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. Appreciate everyone who has given five stars to this episode if you haven't done that you can go on apple podcasts and do that thank you again you can find this podcast on apple podcasts on soundcloud on trying to remember the other ones whatever find it on most places that you can get podcasts we are there this podcast is produced by myself richard clark and cray Allred. we will see you all next week Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.